Hello and thanks for joining us for another episode of the Alternative London Podcast. I'm your host, Gary Means. In this episode, I sat down with Maher Anjum, co-founder of Tati and the Way to Joe Collective. Maher promotes creativity within the Bangladeshi women's community of East London and through Oita Joe teaches culinary skills and runs multiple events celebrating Bangladeshi culture. We spoke a lot about her passion for allowing individuals to recognise and realise their potential and the things that I spoke of as challenges, Maher spoke of as opportunities. So, here it is, the Alternative London podcast with Maher Anjum. here with Maher um, at the Alternative London studio on a Friday morning. Thanks so much for taking the time for coming and doing this. We finally made it. No, thank you for inviting me. You know, as you said, finally made it. So yeah. I'm really looking forward to this. So you run the Oichijo um, Collective. Did I say that right? Yes, I'm one of the co-founders and trustees of the Oichijo Collective. Yeah. And what is that? Uh, what is that? Uh, well, Oitija Collective was set up as a platform for creative practitioners, particularly looking to promote, showcase, support those of the Bangladeshi diaspora, but not uh, exclusively uh, in the creative sector. So from those involved in from music to dance to photography to literature, uh, we felt that there was, when we set it up in 2012, um, that there was a lack of support for those of the Bangladeshi diaspora within the creative industries and the visibility uh, was very minimal and we all knew people, those of us who set it up. Myself and the other trustees were Enamul Hawk, John Baker, Ruhul Abdin and Abbas Nakeshte. We just felt that why is there so little visibility? You know, we just had the 2012 Olympics, which we are celebrating today, I think, 10 years of. And it felt like that, um, you know, Akram Khan, the dancer, was on the center stage of the opening uh, session of the Olympics. And then we all felt, wow, we've made it. And then we looked around and there was nothing there for the rest of the creative sectors uh, being represented. And that's why we set up the Oitija Collective. Oh, wow. Well, what a brilliant project. And I didn't realise that today was kind of a, a special occasion day as well. That is a kind of mark of, I suppose, the, the seed of the, the idea for this project. That's, it is, it is. I mean, we talked about it a lot, but it kind of really became amplified at the kind of, you know, seeing kind of... Um, how there was so little uh, representation um, within the Olympics, within the cultural Olympiads and everything else of what is in London, uh, kind of, you know, a large majority of the minority communities, British Bangladeshis, and we are spread across the UK as a community. Everyone knows us for our kind of, you know, the Indian takeaways, though they are Bangladeshis, <laughs> you know, but it just seems to be our visibility is very little and within particular sectors like the creative industries, which is a booming then and now, you know, has a lot of possibilities uh, and opportunities, just no representation or very little representation. And that's why we felt something needs to be done. Yeah, for sure. And um, how has it gone so far? Um, <laughs> well, 
10 it will be our 10th year next year officially when we registered as a company and um, well it's been a hard slog we have uh, we started the uh, event uh, we started Oitijo with the event in 2013 uh, which was on the south bank on in the Barchar's Oxo Tower we had three day event we had over 70 artists about 100 volunteers we took over the whole of the Barchar's behind Oxo Towers we did you know film showings to fashion shows to discussions talks you know just all things uh, Bangla, I like to say, but from a cultural perspective, we had a huge number of people come through. And that was the highlight. And then we had to kind of live up to it for the rest of the time. But it's been difficult engaging because I think uh, representing creativity uh, from a Bangla diaspora perspective. And there are so many artists nowadays of, you know, of all genres who are involved within the creative industries, but there seems to be so little visualization of them. So we just still feel that it's a struggle. Why do you feel that is? Why do you feel that there's so little visibility? I think, um, there's assumptions uh, that if you're coming from the South Asian community, that you will go into the professions, you know, the established professions. If you're doing kind of, you know, you're going to being a doctor, lawyer, accountant, that kind of thing. Um, the British Bangladeshi community until about 10 years ago, uh, having been a migrant community and being a very young community, where actually, particularly in London and other areas, had huge challenges within the education system. And it's been only in the last 10 years or so, or a bit longer, that the, they have actually been going up, their educational achievements have been going up. We're only minutes from Mulberry School, which is an extremely high achieving school for girls. And, you know, across Tower Hamlets, you see on a, uh, on a, every, every year, how high the achievements have become. So I think we have turned the corner in regards to educational achievements. And you have more young people, you know, people that we are working with every day, who, you know, mothers that we are working with every day, whose children are going into universities and higher education and other professions. So that break is coming through, but it's still a new thing. So I think it's at that time that you need to explore opportunities for those who do not want to go into higher education. So creative industries, creative uh, platforms is not that you don't have a career, you have a career in the creative industries. So I think it's a new way of looking at it, which I think for most parents, not just within the British Bangladeshi community, they're like, what do you mean you want to be a musician? You know, what is a music, what is a musician? It's a very precarious uh, career. You'll never make any money. You'll never have any, you know, what, what is an artist? You know, we did a show in February for a month, which uh, was for 15 uh, British Bangladeshi artists. And what it showed, you know, when we did the call out is that we had huge response for the call out is that there's a huge number of people out there doing things. But actually, where and how they're represented and the opportunities they get to be out there and to show their showcase their work is still very, very minimal. So we, that's why we continue our work to kind of show and support 
the community and show that this is an opportunity and an area of work that they can go into. It's a career that you can build on. That's um sounds such an important um role that you've that you've kind of taken on there do you just quickly i was, I was going to ask you a, a little bit more about yourself but first your role i suppose as an organization is to encourage and to educate people through creative practices but do you feel that there's more of a role in educating the wider community that people can be creatives they can actually make a career or a vocation as in, in the creative arts Do you yeah. feel that? And, and not necessarily within, within your community but then even wider than that showing that the Bangladeshi community can do this to, to the wider community yeah, absolutely well. I mean I think it's it's not a exclusive thing it, it's part of a much bigger picture and mm. we're you know uh, part of what we're doing has many tentacles kind of you know like an octopus it kind of spreads out so our work is about working and promoting the works of British Bangladeshi creative practitioners. It's about looking at how to showcase their work but also how to bring new young people into it. You know, they, they're the future. So for them to see, well, actually, is that an area of work that I could do? And that's not just for the British Bangladeshi community, that's for the much wider community. But at the same time, that in effect really means taking, you know, the uh, Bangladesh, South Asia, this Indian subcontinent has a massive history and legacy of creativity and cultural practices going back not just hundreds of years, but thousands of years. But people aren't aware of it. People don't know about the poets, about the artists, about the very different types of creative crafts and everything else. So it's about bringing that to the wider audience also, including the community itself. Yeah. Because so it, it becomes many layered because we feel very strongly that there's so much creativity and it's not about saying that, you know, you take it and you leave it like that. It's about giving people motivations, you know, so they take it. You know, you see artists like Rizia Wahid, who does, uh, you know, works as a weaver, but she's taken the traditional uh, weaving work of the Jamdani and the Banarashi and taken it to a different scale. And, you know, she's, uh, she qualified from the Chelsea School of Arts. And you have so many other people like that. Is that who are British Bangladeshis who are taking the traditional and moving it to a different level and different realm. And it's the need to take it to that wider audience, including the individual audiences, is what we are about and what we really want to push. Incredible. So what sort of programs are you running at the moment? Um, well, kind of, uh, one of the things we're doing is we're just about to, from next week, start uh, free workshops. We're working with House of Aneta, which is just down the road in Brick Lane. We'll be doing arts, crafts and textile workshops. We're primarily targeting women. Uh, we want to work with them to uh, for the textiles. We want to develop a piece that will then get showcased in the House of Aneta for or the arts and crafts. This is part of a process that we've been continuing to work on, a project called the Creative Women, which was funded by the Foundation of Future London, giving local women, and that's all women, uh, not in employment, an opportunity to explore art as a form and creativity as a form of career. 
you don't have to have any art experience or know how to draw or anything, but you come in and you work with artists. You visit galleries, you visit studios, and you kind of explore what does that mean if I wanted to. Because there's a lot of people, if you speak to them and they say, you know, did you make that? You know, they might have made like a bookmark or something. They said, oh, I just, I just do that in my spare time. They will never consider what they do is of value or is something that, you know, I just make it because people like it. So I give it to them as a present. But then you say to them, would you like to, you know, think of it as a, areas that you would develop, you know, maybe you could go into self-employment, you could do more of it. Oh, no, no, I would never do that. You know, and it's like, why? And I think women are more hesitant in coming forward to acknowledge what they do, what they practice is of value. And then on the other hand, you have more women who go into kind of, you know, self-employment and in the kind of craft areas because it fits around their responsibilities, everyday responsibilities. So it's kind of two sides of the same coin, which can work for women. So we want to encourage women through the this process to look at creativity as a form of, you know, possibility for a career change career development or just well-being you know that's one thing that's come out of the pandemic is that you really need to have that time out yeah i think you're very passionate about helping women which is so important but also unemployed people as yes. well because it really knocks your confidence being Absolutely. unemployed and once you're part of a community or mm. once you're kind of on a roll mm. things are a lot easier yeah but when you're not employed Things are quite tricky, I think. And yeah. I don't think people realise how difficult mm. that can be for people's self-esteem. Yes. I think that's one thing we have found both through our kind of, you know, the creative arts project and the work we do with the kind of the cooking and hospitality, the catering side, is that when women are coming to us, that's women from all walks of life, they're outgoing and they're able and they're okay. But underneath, you can see that struggle. For a large number of them, they're not in full-time employment. They're not or have not been in full-time education. You know, they've been, as a lot of them uh, say to me, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just a housewife. I, I just stay at home. I said, well, you know, just by you saying I'm just a housewife and I just stay at home, there's just so much there. You can't just say it just you know, just in front of it. There's just so much involved in it. But the thing is, society doesn't see them as anything else but that. You know, they'll just say, oh, she's just a housewife. But the level of uh, work that's involved in it, because that doesn't get acknowledged, then the women themselves feel like, oh, I'm just a housewife. You know, I don't do anything else. And that's what it kind of, you know, really irritates me, uh, like for many other people, because there's no acknowledgement of the skills, experience. So by the time they come to us, they're just like, I, I, I can't do anything. You know, I'm, I'm just not able to do anything. And so like, well, it, it, you know, I'm sure you, you know, you run a household. That means you're doing so many things. You know, let's start from that. And that's why for our uh, catering work, we, uh, Tati Canteen, we start where the women are which is, you know, acknowledge them for the skills that they have and value them. And, you know, one of the skills that a lot of the British Bangladeshi women are bringing with them uh, is cooking. 
So rather than say, oh, don't, don't, don't even go there, we feel like we should start where they are and acknowledge and value that so that there is a belief in what they do, not just by ourselves, but everyone else. And you know, the one thing we repeatedly hear from people is they said, I know I'm just cooking. You know, there's that word just, I know I'm just cooking. But when someone says to you that food was really nice, that really makes me feel good. I said, well, you know, you cook at home all the time. I said, yeah, but that's family. They, you know, they, they just come, they, you know, you cook the food, they sit down, they eat, and then they go away. They'll never stand there and say, oh, that really tasted nice. Whereas when you're cooking professionally and you're cooking for, you know, you're being paid to do the cooking and you're serving the food and that whole process and system, it starts that process of thinking, oh, I do know something, you know, it's that self-acknowledgement along with kind of, you know, people saying, that's lovely, that's tasty, you know, how did you do it? You know, you have that conversation and that builds up that self-esteem and that self-confidence, which, you know, for a lot of the women who come to us initially, it's like, I've never worked. You know, they may have been in this country for 10, 20 years plus, but they would have never worked. They, you know, looking after children, looking after family, and they may be at that point where, you know, children are grown up and it's like, what do I do with my life? You know, the empty bird, birds kind of scenario works for everyone, but what are the opportunities? Yeah. So we kind of do that self-esteem, self-confidence directly through the process of the work that comes out. Uh, uh, as a result. Amazing. And um, do you think there is a gap between the, we were, we were talking about um, Bangladeshi cooking, which mm. is something that's become the most popular food in the UK. And especially around the East End of London, yeah. like the amount of curry restaurants and things like yeah. that. But the majority of those chefs are, are male, aren't they? Mm, whereas, that's right. whereas in the home, the majority of the uh, cooks are, are women, women yeah, aren't they? That's right. Yeah, and that's a, a sort of I find that a bit of a strange phenomenon. I suppose that maybe that's the case with um, with the culinary scene across the UK in general. Yeah. Maybe maybe around I the think, world. I, I don't know. Yeah, I think. I mean, within the culinary scene, uh, hospitality it tends to be, especially kind of at the high end. You know, you tend to get it to be more male dominated, and you get the uh, not just the celebrity chefs, but the kind of the high level chefs. Majority of them, you know, the Michelin stars and everything. Majority are men, yeah. and majority are white men, but. You know, there are women coming through, you know, uh, trickles and things, and there are more opportunities now than there have been. But women are kind of almost invisible. They may be sous chefs, they may be in the kitchen, but they're not up there, not in the numbers that they are. And I think, you know, we've had discussions, I think, you know, work with the Centre of London when they did their report a, a couple of years back around, you know, uh, what is going to be the hospitality sector's response following on from COVID and everything else. And one of the things was that, you know, people who have been hit hardest, one of the sectors is women you know, through the COVID pandemic, but also overall, if you look at the uh, hospitality and the culinary sector, you know, with everything that's been going on, you know, politically and otherwise, uh, with the exit of, uh, you know, uh, of UK from um, Europe and everything else, you know, the hospitality sector, the service sector has suffered. But you have a whole pool of women 
who could fit in and do the job. But because of the way the sector is run, you know, it has to be eight to ten. You know, well, who does the school run then? Yeah. Because, that, you know, there's some real practicalities that has to be fitted in. You can't just say that, oh, women aren't interested because, you know, uh, they aren't able. It's not that women aren't able. It's just that they have burden of the responsibility mm. of not just childcare, but other caring responsibilities in the household. So someone has to do that for them to be able to, or you have to make adjustments within the work time. So for us, you know, when we, you know, we take women on, but they work in rotors so that if you can't do it because you've got your child's school played this week, someone else will have the rotor because otherwise it's just not possible. Yeah. And having that flexibility. And things are starting, I think, after the pandemic to become more flexible, mm -hmm. I think, and that overall, and that's a good thing. That's right. But it sounds like a lot of the issues that you're talking about are so um, deeply entrenched about mm. um, people's perception of culture. Yes. Of background. Yes. Of race. Yes. And of gender. All those words. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So what a, a struggle it is for you to break down that many barriers on a daily basis. It must be hard work. <laughs> try, uh, try not to think of the barriers as such, because I think one of the yeah. things um, in working with the women we, uh, we say, and they will say, is that, you know, when we work, we try not to start with the word no, because in... In practicality, if you try and do something, you know, when we first started and we were talking about uh, with the women uh, about how do you do this? What are your work hours? You know, what does it mean? Everything. And I remember one discussion was about. So, you know, if you started being involved in a cafe that we set up, what time could you get? I said, oh. A lot of time. I said, what time? I said, oh, we can do 10 to 2. I said, what, what, what do you mean? I said, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. I said, well, that's not that many hours. Why can you give 10 a.m. to 2 p.m.? It's like, I, I can drop my child off to school. I can be here. And then I can pick, go pick up my child from school. I said, well, you know, to run a business based on 10 to 2 really limits what you're able to do. You know, you can't actually do much at all. They said, but that was their reality. You know, we can't just say, oh, forget it. We'll just get new people. But where we are now is that, you know, three years on from where uh, when we started is that women have adjusted their lives. Women that who are working with us see the benefit of working for themselves, for their families. And they make that adjustment where, as I said, you know, sometimes they'll be there. When they, uh, you know, when they can in the early morning, we are doing, you know, we do events which requires us to do a morning, you know, reception or something that is an evening reception or a weekend reception. And that's no longer a problem because if you are given an opportunity, you take it and you work with it. But if you have never been given that opportunity, you're, you know, when you're told first time, what do you think? You'll say, well, no, because you don't know anything about it. 
you have never had that opportunity. It's never been uh, brought to you. It's never been discussed with you. It's never been shown to you. But you've always been told you can't do it because you're a mother, you're a woman, you're this, you've got, you know, things at home. So they're always told you can't. It's not possible. So the psyche says that I can't. So it's almost like re, um, re-educating yeah. that actually I can. Yeah. And most of the women will say, it is difficult, and it is difficult, it's challenging, but, you know, we'll give it a go. And I think that's when you start uh, feeling that you have self-confidence. You've built up your self-esteem. And that's part of what we do. Yeah, I think just that, that starting point of giving something a go is um, takes a lot of bravery and confidence. Huge. Doesn't it? And, yeah. and just, I think, once you get over that, um, that starting block for pretty much anything, mm. you can move forward with it and you can get on a roll and you, and you start to build from that, can't you? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and it is understandable why people have that because if they've never done it and, you know, their families don't know uh, how they're going to be, you know, they're worried of, you know, what happens to their mother, what happens to their wife, what happens to their sister. You know, why would you just say, yeah, go jump off that cliff? No <laughs> one's going to say that. They're all going to say, oh, hold on, say, you know, beware, be careful. Are you really sure? Do you want to do it? So that's totally understandable. But part of our job and other providers and other, you know, uh, organizations, uh, you know, our job is to show people actually it is safe and it's a calculated risk. And sometimes it will be fine, but there are other times it won't be fine. But it, you have to learn how to cope with the, within that process so that you can become a more uh, adaptive person and that's when you can actually work within any environment and take that leap and for you as well i suppose the 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 longer that you're running the projects the less of a risk people see it as because everyone sees that it's a success people see that well someone else that i know mm. has done this someone yeah. else and and i suppose the word spreads mm. And people, people get more confidence mm. in, in you as a, as a provider. Absolutely. I mean, what we are doing isn't rocket science. It's no. quite simple in not just from the craft and creative side, but also from the catering side. It's quite simple. It's quite basic. But what all we are doing is we are emphasizing it a little bit more, you know, because that's what our job is. And I think as more and more people, uh, you know, come in contact with us, see us, you know, get involved in our work, get, you know, see what it's all about. They'd say, oh, well, I could do that. You know, someone, and that's what it's about. It's not something, you know, it's mine. Don't touch it. Don't come near it. You know, we're happy to collaborate. I think collaboration is the way forward. Partnership working is the way forward because honestly, I only know a few things. Someone else, you know, you know a lot more things and then someone else knows a lot more things. And it's by pulling all of that together that we may come up with something we never even thought of. And that's what it should be. You know, it's that having that format of creativity to really push things and then get something like, oh, wow, that was nice. Do it again. Yeah. You talk about it so eloquently and, uh, and passionately. Um, where, where did it all sort of come from? Where, where, what was your background? How did it, how did it all come about? Um, oh, uh, 
Thank you. Uh, <laughs> um, where did it come from? Um, I think my background is kind of worked for many years within kind of like a combination of public, private, and the third sector, kind of in, always very much looking at engagement engagement within community. I spent a lot of time uh, working within the public sector, um, um, in local authorities, uh, in kind of, you know, um, regeneration bodies, uh, kind of looking at, you know, local area developments. Uh, so at that kind of very grassroots level, making things happen or changing things around or whatever. But then I went kind of, you know, worked uh, at, at what was then the London Development Agency, which worked with the mayor's office up to the point of uh, kind of, you know, when the Olympics came to town. And that really showed the capacity of when you're organizing, strategizing what can happen. So that was just like, oh my God, we got the Olympics. And it was just like, it's real, it can happen. And um, I worked within what was called the Creative London program, which looked as London as a creative hub for the UK and what it attracted, what it did, the value of it. the fire. So that's where we started thinking afterwards when I left and did, started doing my own work. I was working uh, a lot of internationally between looking and exploring with, uh, the trade links between Bangladesh and the UK, particularly within the um, kind of the green manufacturing in the garments sector. You know, Bangladesh, one of the largest, second largest garments producer or first largest, you know, and has been for the last 10 years. And I was very intrigued by the supply chain and how things get produced. And it's just the vastness of it. You know, how did Bangladesh, which only became independent in 1971 and then struggled as much as it did over the last 40 years, then suddenly become this giant where everyone has something, at least one or two items in their household, which is made in Bangladesh. And it's not of bad quality. It's quite decent. And I got really interested in and intrigued by this kind of, you know, how did that happen? Where did that happen? Where did that work from? So that's kind of like my background. And that kind of interested me and linked me with what happened at Rana Plaza in 2013 and kind of the whole incidents and the accident of the collapse of the building, which created the, you know, thousands of people, over a thousand people died there. And looking at the, you know, how can you have a sector which works like uh, it does, you know, producing 24 hours to supply markets in the West, but what they get paid is pittance. You know, again, looking at it from a perspective of where is the engagement, what's happening? Yes, people are getting employed, but what they're getting employed and paid for, you know, it's a very exploitative system and it comes down onto the kind of, you know, the marks of uh, what's happening here within the northern, you know, western hemisphere of where the uh, buyers are you know, where the big houses are, where the big fashion names are, the brands are. So I was intrigued by the whole ethical and sustainable and the kind of, you know, the marketing side of, you know, not just the marketing, but the production side of how did that work, the green work works. Because if people in Bangladesh put the prices up because that to reflect the real labor and the real cost of things, no one would buy it here. 
you know, you wouldn't get your uh, two T-shirts for five pounds. It just wouldn't happen. But that's not, and that doesn't reflect the true price. So, and then that kind of sh- kind of got me thinking and doing more work around creativity because I just was very intrigued by the whole uh, sustainability and production and design work that happens with uh, materials and craftspeople in Bangladesh, not just the big, huge uh, manufacturing um, kind of in the sector. And that kind of got me to Oitijo talking and walking and then here I am. What does Oitijo mean? Oitijo in Bangla is straightforward, gets translated as heritage. But how we see heritage, you know, we kind of uh, see heritage as not as a static thing, that this is heritage, because that tends to be the definition of heritage, that this is how it is. We see heritage as something like you understand what was the past when it was created, to which gives you a reflection of what it is that you're doing here now at the moment which will allow you to really understand how and where you want to be in the future. So it, it, see it as a continuum and see it as something that's um, moving. You know, definitions will move, things will move. Very much part of the creativity, innovation, kind of a design uh, kind of, you know, perspective that it's not just one thing. You know, red is not always red. Red can be, depending on how the light shines on it, it could be many different colors. So why should we see just one thing as one thing and say, that's it? Never touch it again. Mm. And everyone sees everything differently as well. Everyone sees everything from their perspective. And from their own sort of stories. Absolutely. And I think that's why we feel very strongly at Oitija that, you know, you can use creativity to have those conversations, to have those debates and discourses using creative methods and creative mediums, which you can't always. When you're having a, you know, face-to-face conversation, if it's something that I and you disagree on, it will end up in a shouting match possibly fist ups or whatever and never talk to each other ever again. And that's just a wastage. Whereas, you know, using creative methods without it being very confrontational and being the only means of actually saying, well, that's it. You know, either you listen to me or not. There's many ways of doing it. And I think we feel strongly, I feel strongly that creativity is one of those things, creative mediums whether it's cooking, whether it's arts, crafts, textile, whatever it is, music, you know, there's so much. You can use that and, you know, people think and look at creativity in so many different ways uh, that, you know, that's how it should be, you know, new ideas, new generations talking and looking at it differently. Yeah, and when you're coming at something from a a creative perspective, there's less of a, um, a kind of black and white wrong and right attitude yes, there's that's more right. there's there's more a uh, an openness for exploration exactly finding new ways isn't there yeah. Yeah. and i think you know you said earlier that you know these are huge challenges how do we deal with it you know kind of you know racism kind of gender bias and all of this they are huge challenges but i think that's why creativity is so important because if you just see them as just challenges everyday challenges you're just like oh god no you know you get weighed down by it and you know don't bother getting out of bed kind of thing whereas if you look at it well actually if we're doing this craft workshop and this textile design workshop and different people are coming if we do a food demonstration session you know it's using different formats 
to kind of getting people into a room who wouldn't be in the same room otherwise. And having that opportunity to think, well, actually, you know, so many people have said to us when they've done their textile workshops or the craft workshops or even the food demonstration is that I never thought I could do this. I haven't touched a pen, you know, color pen since I've been, you know, out of school. And it's just giving it to them. And this is like, I can't draw a straight line. I say, I know I can't draw a straight line, but it doesn't matter. You don't need a straight line, you know. You know, we, we get too stuck on it has to be a straight line. Who says it has to be a straight line? It could be, you know, who says it has to be a line? Yeah, exactly. It sounds like you get a lot of satisfaction out of it all. Um, yeah, I think when I see people actually, uh, you know, start starting really hesitantly looking at that blank piece of paper or that, you know, when someone's talking about design, you know, uh, looking at the sewing thing and saying, oh, I really don't know about this. And then suddenly in a couple of sessions down the road, they're like, you know, sewing away or, you know, doing embroidery and stitching or talking about, you know, making dolls. You think, yeah, yeah, you know, and they're, you know, bubbly, they're creative, they're talking about, you know, how their children are doing it now at home and just think, that's it. It makes just that one difference in one person, how long they continue with it, it's, they will always have that feeling inside them that when I did that, that felt really nice. So they can always come back to that feeling, if not to that activity itself. And I think that's well-being. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, you were talking earlier as well about um, about working in regeneration mm-hmm. and those kind of things. And um, I mean, since the London Olympics, so much, uh, so much has changed around around the area. And um, yeah, how do you how do you kind of feel about the the changes of of East London? I mean. Sometimes you don't recognize a place. I think some of the uh, kind of the redevelopment. And I think the one thing I've learned uh, is like, you know, change will always happen. That's the only constant, you know, change is constant. And whatever it is will happen. It's just a case of how do we actually manage that process? And I think some of the changes that's happened, like where we are now at, um, uh, what used to be where, where the present uh, town hall is, Mulberry Place. The whole area is called Republic, but it used to be only known as Mulberry Place. It wasn't, you know, all the different buildings. It used to be used by the council, but most of the buildings, except for the Mulberry Place itself, is now being redeveloped by Trilogy, who are the owners of that place, and you know. They've, they've turned it into a student campus. There are three universities there. There's lots of other, uh, other kind of, you know, companies there. We're there as a small, tiny unit. Now, that couldn't have happened even five years ago because, you know, the market was so different. So with the, I think we start, we went in there just as COVID hit, started. So we are very fortuitous of having the landlord who's actually been very understanding 
and has been very open about um, utilizing uh, empty space. And I think those are the conversations that change can bring. You know, the pandemic was a boom smack in our face for everyone. And we all had to wake up and figure out what we wanted to do when we grow up. And I think it is, is that kind of a thing that has come about where you have to look at, can we just continue the way we were? So change and redevelopment around East London is happening. And I know some are more challenging and you think, how did that come about? You know, you've got the Truman Brewery and all the discussions around the change that are proposed there. And, you know, people like Nijer Manush who are uh, actually working with the community to kind of, you know, challenge those decisions. And I think some changes you have to question and say, is that really to the effect and the benefit of the community? And in, a, in defining community, I'm defining it as a much, not just local people who live there, but all those, also those who work there, those who study there, those who are commuting from there, because I think it's all those mixes that make up the community. Yeah. So just for anyone that doesn't know about the Truman Brewery, that's um, the the site of the old brewery is now a sort of cultural, creative mm. epicenter of East London, really. And yep. there was a proposal to develop a part of it. And over 7,000 people um, wrote letters um, opposing it. Yep. But I think 84 wrote letters in support. <laughs> so it's going ahead, which just kind of... Um, shows what we're up against yeah. in the east end of london mm. it's not necessarily the the developments people are opposed to it's the it's the displacement i think the forcible yeah. displacement of people i think it's understanding the process and i think uh, nijer manush and the uh, and the whole group they did get a judicial review last i heard they were going through the process of doing that but it's just an example of as you say you know you can't just build whatever it is, you know, whether it's houses, whether it's buildings, and I know there's a huge demand for housing, but building lots of apartments which are sold at extremely high-end, high cost, doesn't always reflect what's needed. But also you're building apartments like where we are in around uh, Republic and you've got all those amazing flats around Blackwell, I think it's called Blackwall Reach and everything. It's great, but there aren't any facilities there. There aren't any amenities there. So part of what we have ended up doing, because we have the unit there, you know, we've got a community garden at the back of it. We kind of hold sessions. You know, people are always dropping in and saying, what do you have that we can do? Well, what can my child do? What can I do? When you're building a building, you have to think about what else are you offering? Yeah, when you're building something that, that big for so many people, you need to, you're building a community and you, exactly. need, to be, you need to be aware of that. But, um, but you're certainly building a community. We're trying. <laughs> and um, you have the Bangladeshi film nights now. Is that monthly? Yes, that's uh, monthly. I think the next one we've, uh, I think it, it was supposed to be next week, but I think we might postpone it till in the summer holidays. Uh, come back in September. So we started doing the monthly film night, which we're really excited about. It does a, a short film of a new independent uh, filmmaker and then a classic Bengali film. 
Amazing. Yeah, we're really excited by that. We we started off with Shotjadit Roy's uh, Charulata, which is a very a classic. We are looking forward to doing the next one. And, uh, you know, it's building different communities. Different people are interested in different things and bringing them together, having an opportunity to see that. Yeah. Anything else coming up that we should know about? Um, I mentioned about the free workshops. We start at House of Aneta next week. It's for six sessions till the 11th of August. We have today a, a fundraising event for the floods that happened in Silet uh, earlier on in June. So we're doing a fundraising event uh, with our partners, East End Homes, Myland Community Project, and we're doing it at Southern Grove. Come by anytime from 12 to, uh, I think, 6 o'clock, 5 o'clock. Yeah. There'll be food stalls and other activities. All donations will go towards the uh, floods in Bangladesh. Mm-hmm. And we have lots of other things happening. We will try to put it up all on social platforms and websites and everything. But come and join us and come and meet us. And any questions, come and talk to us. Yeah, for sure. And I'll definitely be checking out the film night. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Maha, it's so nice to have you on. And Thank really, you for having I've, me. I've really enjoyed speaking to you. And um, I think it's just absolutely amazing, um, incredible what you're doing. And, Thank you. and long may it continue. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's been really enjoyable talking to you. Thank you so much. Take care. Thanks so much to Maha for taking the time out to record this, which was actually her first podcast. You can find more about the Oitajo Collective in the link in the episode description. And don't forget to leave a five stars wherever you're listening and subscribe to get new episodes every fortnight. This has been the Alternative London Podcast with me, Gary Means, edited by Stu Ballingall. See you next time.